You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me again. You're listening to Amphibicast. I'm your host, Andrew Bates, and tonight is going to be the final installment of our large format vivarium series. If you recall episode one, we started out with the tank itself, specifically a four foot by six foot by two foot tank. Episode two, we talked about the hardscape. In episode three, we talked about plants. Tonight, we're going to finish up on, in my opinion, is I guess really the most important topic is going to be which frog species we should stock the tank with. So if you're thinking this is just going to be about dart frogs, it's not. We're going to cover a lot of different species. Uh, my guest, of course, is the one and only Troy Goldberg, and Troy has kept almost, if not all, of the species on this list that we're going to cover tonight. So bear in mind, it's not necessarily going to be dart frog specific, but you know there's going to be quite a few of them in there as well. So before we get into that, of course, the usual stuff. Thanks to everyone for the nice five-star reviews. Thanks to all the patrons on Patreon. If you're interested in becoming a patron, follow the link in the link tree. It'll take you to the page. I've got tiers as low as a dollar a month. If you want to support the show with something as low as a dollar a month, you can do that. Uh, the most popular tier, of course, is the $5 tier, and that'll get you a shout-out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. And for everything else, just follow the link tree. It'll take you to the merch store. It'll take you to a link that you can support Panamanian frog conservation. And uh, most importantly, of course, if you're interested in purchasing any of the in-situ ecosystems vivariums that we've discussed throughout the series, click on the link in the show description or the one in the link tree. If you make your purchase, you'll get a 10% discount just for being a listener of the show, and you get yourself a quality vivarium. As an affiliate, a small commission also comes back to me at absolutely no cost to you whatsoever. So you'll be able to support the show, save 10%, and get a quality tank in the process. So... Other than that, I've been really looking forward to this. I know you guys have been waiting for this. We're going to talk about all the different frog choices that we can put into a tank this big. So I've got Troy on the line. Let's get into it now. So Troy, welcome back. What's going on since we spoke uh, like five minutes ago? <laughs> yeah, it seemed like it was just a few episodes ago. Um, you know, same old, man. Just uh, getting ready for the, the snow. To, well, actually, we got snow the other day. So it's already snowed in Ohio. So I'm just getting ready for the winterization of the garage yeah you know we're going to talk about the different species that can go into this this big format tank but i mean yeah you you guys in ohio i mean where we have it in new york i mean it gets cold here but not to the extent where it gets cold for such a long period how do you winterize your garage to make sure the frogs all make it through the winter well <laughs> um I, I i take the uh my ac unit out of the window that's number one um and then i just i just crank the, honestly i crank the uh my Resner heater that's that's just always been in the garage uh luckily i just had one here <clears throat> i just kind of crank it up a few degrees i've got a bunch of thermometers in here for like each wall of my rack um and i have i have some thermometers down low i have some up high um and i just kind of gauge you know i want the you know the ambient temperature in the room down at the floor um would be you know outside of the tank um, you know, I, I aim for somewhere around 68 to 70 and then the tanks that are up on the higher racks, you know, I'm aiming for somewhere around 70, uh, outside of the tank, like 75 is good for me. Um, you know, usually all of the species I have in the, the tanks on the third row, they're all, um, you know, Pamilio and, and stuff, you know, kind of Island, um, rainforest locales where it's a little hotter there. So, um, they, uh, they seem to do well there and, you know, I keep my bigger frogs down low, and then I keep all the histrionica and some of the higher-prized frogs um, kind of right in the middle where <laughs> it's kind of the safest zone. So, um, yeah, I don't I don't have to do too much out here because when I initially set it up, I uh, had the, the attic insulated, and 
like luckily my the walls were already insulated and the garage doors were the insulated garage doors so i was kind of already lucky that i didn't have to do a whole lot and um yeah just kind of mess with the heat temperature and take the ac out and i'm pretty much good to go yeah my everything in mine's in the basement so it stays pretty consistent there like my big problem is in the in the winter it gets really really dry from the heat oh, and, it, yeah. and then in the summer it gets really dry from the air conditioner so i've yep. got like between like maybe september and december and then like march to may and the rest <laughs> the rest of the year it's a nightmare trying to keep everything from drying yep. out oh I, I totally hear you it's these resiner heaters my there's times in the winter time my humidity is the lowest i've seen it's at seven percent um it's it's just incredibly dry out here but um you know i have i think last year when i added the foggers to the 300 gallon um you know a lot of that fog escapes out of the, the vents and keep I, I didn't see it get that low that last winter last winter i mean the lowest it got was around uh, 15 which is still super low but um you know with all the with all the tanks, I usually just kind of block off the, the door vents and it, it maintains a lot of the humidity in the room, um, it, you know, in those tanks. So I, I just kind of have to, that's really all I do for the tanks switching from, you know, the warmer months to the cooler months is I just kind of block off the vents on the tanks, um, for the winter time. But you know, the tanks look ugly cause all the condensation on the glass, but you know, you gotta keep keep those little guys happy. Right. Yeah. I do the same thing. Cause one of my, a couple of my tanks actually one in particular is right underneath one of the ducts for the ac so i have mm -hmm. to i have to cover the the screen section of that otherwise it just pulls everything out and it's like you know the sahara in there which which oh, yeah. it's lousy because yeah it, it it's constantly got condensation on the glass you can barely see what's in there but yeah um it's it's either that or the frog just completely dries out and they, it's funny because they they their behavior changes so much when they oh, dry yeah. out, like they, they become like really reclusive and they just like, you can tell like, like, like something's going on here. And then you look and you see, all right, like there's very little water in the drainage layer or the substrate's really, really dry. And it's like, sorry guys, I, I gotta get, I gotta get on that. The, the, the histrionic there, like in the large obligates in general, um, they're one of the, the most like obvious, like when, if it's summertime and it's, you know, it's pretty hot in the garage, say it's like 70 I'd say like in the September months, mainly I notice it the most, say it's, it's warm in the day, you know, you get up in the eighties and it's hot in the garage and then, you know, it'll cool off at night and I'll open the door, open the garage door and, and you'll see all the tanks immediately get like covered in condensation on the inside and you'll just hear them all whack, and they all start going nuts. They all start calling and they're courting. They all just go nuts. Like regardless, whenever there's like that cool, cool air comes in and it just changes that humidity it's it's like a humidity spike they go they go absolutely bonkers um more so than any of my other frogs they, they literally go nuts but yeah it's uh it's cool to see though you know i get to see i get to feel all the seasons out here in the garage <laughs> yeah i just get one which is like it's it's like perpetual darkness down there but you know I, 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 a lot of people have natural light for their frog rooms i mean i can't be the only person who keeps frogs in the basement but it's just the only free space i have like oh yeah i, I often wonder you I know have none. i have no natural light yeah either. yeah I, I just i wonder what it's like to be able to i mean i, I guess it, i mean it could potentially be 
risky if you have a window and the window was you know the sunlight comes in and it's blasting a tank you get a really bad greenhouse effect but oh yeah i don't know i'm always curious about people who actually have natural lighting yeah i mean i know it's if you can get some natural lighting and you're not getting the direct sunlight in the tank i think it could probably be beneficial possibly but um you know i think that direct light like you said that green i mean you'll you'll make that tank get hot as shit (laughs) hot as heck (laughs) (laughs) um Uh, but but yeah i I, even when i did have the opportunity to have natural light i always kept those blinds closed just you know i'm kind of crazy about that stuff so i i just try and keep it as as safe as possible and as little risk as possible you know yeah you don't want the neighbors seeing what's going on either that's right (laughs) so all right so the past three episodes we've talked about different things that can happen in a really really big tank specifically the you know four four foot by two foot by six foot your 300 gallon is pretty big and you've kept a lot of different species so i'd like to go through a couple of the different species that you've kept in that massive tank and maybe touch on some of the finer points uh, like i mean well i'll tell you what let's which species have you kept in in that big tank let's kind of run down a list and then we'll we'll address each one Okay. Um, so, well, currently I have the Adelopis balios and they've been, um, the, there, that was the first species I threw in the tank and, um, they're about to leave though. I am, I did sell them and I'm shipping them out next week, but so I have the Adelopis balios. I have the, uh, Hylenobatrachium valeri, um, the glass frogs. They were the second species I added. And I did have some Ranatomea imitators. Unfortunately, all of those escaped, um, which I can get into that as well. Um, and I did have some Ufaga Pamilio uh, Bastimentos. And I had four of those in there. Three of those escaped. The last one before it escaped, I moved it to a different tank. Um, so, uh, yeah, I can I can tell you that the, the reasons that the the smaller frogs were escaping. I was, I was just afraid that, you know, the, the tank's four foot tall um, and it's five foot wide. So it's got, they're big doors, similar size to, I mean, it's literally the same exact size as the one you're talking about. It's just a foot narrower. Um, so they're big doors. And, you know, when you open the door to do any access or feeding or anything, that's, you know, they've got, you know, minus the substrate dam and the vent, they've basically got about uh, 40 inches of, of space where they can hop out. And so I was worried that that's how they were getting out, but it's actually in between my two doors, there's a, there's a significant gap um, from the overlap. And I didn't, I didn't put any sort of um, silicone blocker, like, you know, to block that gap off, you know, there's, there's also these little, um, they're called sci-fly strips that um, a guy, Dev Lee, who used to run Folius.net, used to sell these little clear 3M. Um, they were basically like a little clear plastic strip. It was like a soft plastic, and the one side had an adhesive to it, and you just stuck it to the glass, and it blocked off that that door. But uh, I didn't do that. So, But I did find out that's how they were getting out. Um, so I think, they, those, I think all those frogs would have been – because they all were living together at once. I did have the Pamilio. Did have the Ranatomea imitators, the green imitators, and I had the glass frogs and the Adelopis all in the tank at once. There was I, I saw no issues. They were all occupying different areas in the tank. Um, 
I saw no fighting. Um, and I can kind of understand why now. Um, I mean, the Pamilio and the Ranitomeyev, you know, they really didn't seem to have any problems with each other. And they're small enough frogs that they were able to kind of go where they were happy and not bothering anybody. Um, so, like I said, I never saw them fighting. And I did see the Pamilio down lower more, where I saw the Ranitomeyev up higher more. Um, the Adelopis, one of the reasons I'm getting rid of them is because, for me, they've been basically nocturnal. I don't really see them in the day at all. Um, occasionally I'll see a male, but the females, like, gone. Never see them in the daytime. And then late at night, when I turn the lights off and put food in there for the glass frogs, I'd see the Adelopis all come out and start eating at night. And I'm like, what the heck's going on here? Um, so, you know, that that kind of kind of made me decide to uh, sell the Adelopis because I was like, you know, I, the reason I, Adelopus have never been my favorite frogs. So, you know, they, they've got like a kind of a, a bizarre, I'm really strange with like head shapes and body shapes and stuff like that with frogs. Uh, I like like the shorter snout, like a Tinctorius or like a Histrionica. Like I like that short snout um, and kind of like a, you know, a stout stocky stance where they kind of look like tough. They're like little bulldogs, if, if that makes sense. It's kind of like a Terribilis as well. Um so I've just always liked that that body shape and head shape, and Adelopus are not that at all. But with the paludarium, you know, you know, knowing it's a paludarium and it's kind of the, the habitat that they inhabit. Um, so I was just like, you know, Adelopus would be a good fit here, and they'll be good display animals. They're everyone's like they're really bold. They're always out in the day. You'll see them all the time. So that's you know, talking to certain people, that's what kind of made me decide on them. Um, but after having them for a year, over a year, I was just like, you know, I don't know if it's just, there's too much water or something, but there's a, there's a significant amount of land in my big tank that I, I never see them down low. They're always up in the leaves and they always come out at night. So, you know, I was like, if I'm going to have a nighttime animal, um, in that inhabiting that tank, it's not going to be out of Lopez Balios, I can tell you that. Um, so that's why I, I purchased the Cruzio Highly Craspidopus and, uh, they're not in the tank yet cause the Balios are still there. Um, but like I said, the Balios are leaving next week. I'm shipping them out and, um, I'll have to move the glass frogs because the Craspidopus will try and eat them cause they're both going to be nocturnal animals and those glass frogs are pretty little. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to have to remove them, uh, which is unfortunate cause those are really fun to watch at nighttime. So, uh, but I've got another project planned for them in the future. Um, but yeah, you know, having a, t a tank that big with, you know, it, it's, it's got a big water portion. It's got a big land portion. It's got, you know, a background with tons of different um, surface areas where each frog can inhabit. So that's, you know, you can definitely cohab in a tank that size um, with multiple genera. Uh, where they're not going to mix and crossbreed, you know. Um, and uh, like I said, I didn't really have the Ranitome and the Familia long enough to really say they would never have fought. Um, but for the six months I had them in there, I, I saw no fighting, um, which you would you would expect. Most of the time when fighting happens, it's when the frogs, you know, reach breeding age, which all of these frogs were all breeding age from the time they went in the tank. So you would imagine that if they were going to fight, that first week going into a new enclosure, all the frogs at breeding sexual maturity, um, 
some fighting would have happened and and it didn't so um and i spend a good amount of time out here so i, I definitely would have noticed it and uh, i never found a like i said never found a frog dead inside the tank it was always they they escaped the tank so um you know i i think that group of frogs that i had could have worked fine just fine um the only thing i was worried about to be honest with you with those all those frogs together was um the if the bastamentos would have bred in there uh the froglets i just have a feeling if they would have hopped out of the bromeliads and landed in the the large water section very likely they wouldn't have made it out or they would have got sucked into the uh my power head the the vortex mp10 they would have got sucked into there and and kind of shredded so that that was a concern of mine so luckily that never happened we didn't get that far but um you know you you got to trial by error i guess has always been um something i've i've practiced and it's the best learning learning experience i think in my opinion so um yeah it, it you know like i said it definitely worked out but i would when i do move the craspidopus into this big tank i don't know if i'm gonna have anything else um i don't really know what else i could put i mean i thought about you know some sort of some sort of dart frog um because you know there's a ton of water in my tank but there's countless ways for them to get out there's so many branches and pieces of wood and rocks and stuff they can literally climb right out so i'm not really worried about a frog drowning in there um you know especially if i have the power head turned turned way down there's like no current but um you know i, I may just end up going with just craspidopus in this in this big tank um but we'll see i, I really don't know we'll see what happens you know, I thought about like some sort of, even though I don't really care for them, some sort of erotus species um, or, or locale. But, you know, the, the, the issue with, with mixing craspidopus and dart frogs or even any, any tree frog and dart frogs um, is, is crickets. You know, you can get some, there's, there's stories about crickets chewing on, dart frogs when the dart frogs are sleeping at night uh, especially smaller dart frogs you know crickets can do quite a bit of damage um when the dart frogs are inactive and you know roosting or whatever they're doing where the tree frogs are active they're certainly not going to eat every single cricket um so the the so one of the ways you can try to combat any issues of that happening if you did decide to cohab tree frogs and dart frogs um, like large tree frogs, not not the glass frogs. Glass frogs, you, you can feed them crickets the entire lifespan. It'll be fine. But um, is to, you know, bowl train. If, you, if you've got the frogs trained to eat from a dish, like put crickets in a dish and the dish is tall enough where the crickets can't climb it or get out, certainly you can have some that may get out. But the majority of them just sit in the bowl and the frogs eat from the bowl. Um, you know, that's one way you can kind of combat that um where you may be able to be successful doing that but to me the whole idea of bull training is very unnatural um and i just i'd hate it you know but you just you got to find if if that's something that's like a real goal of somebody's then you got to find a way to make it work and, and i'm not saying that people haven't mixed dart frogs and and red-eyed tree frogs or cruzio hyla or you know Phylum medusa, because I mean, the Baltimore Aquarium has a giant tank. 
and there's Father Medusa bicolors in it, and then huge group of orange Galactinatus in there. And it's it's really really cool to see. The tank's like six foot tall. Um, I think maybe five foot tall. But you know the Galacts are primarily all on the ground, and it's just like there's a bunch of tree buttresses and moss and leaf litter. The Galacts stay down there and just forage all day. Sometimes you'll see one up maybe two three feet. And then at the very, very top on some branches, you just see the the, the giant bicolors just sitting there under the under the UVB, just getting blasted. And um, I'm guessing they probably uh, tong feed those. Um, but, you know, I'm not exactly sure, but they've had that set up like that for years. So you, you I know, don't really know. Go ahead. You, you know what? My, my theory is they picked two species that were so diametrically opposed in environmental needs mm -hmm. that by creating two different climates or whatever you want to call it within a really really big tank yep. you almost i mean nothing can be 100 percent, but you're you almost assure that they're not going to come into contact with each other yeah because if you yeah. keep a phylobates bicolor like a dart frog you're gonna you know you're gonna kill it and if you keep a, if you keep a dart <laughs> frog like a bicolor you're gonna you're gonna kill that too yeah so i mean that just to me just seems like careful planning because Yep. You know, the bicolor is going to hang out all the way up at the top, just exactly. soaking in that full sun. Yeah, they're yep. not going to want to go down there. I mean, that would be like, I mean, I'm I'm trying to think like, I'm trying. I'm I'm lost for a good example, but you you almost create like an invisible barrier between oh, the two absolutely. species where they're really not going to they're they're not going to interact because it's been engineered to keep yep. them from doing so. Yep. Yeah. I mean that's. Most likely why they never come in contact in, in the wild or, you know, in Brazil. Um, I'm sure they probably don't come into contact too often. So, because I think they, they may have even, I think they even have like a, what's the Brazilian, is it a rattles? It's a pit viper? Is it the Bushmaster? Is that in Brazil? Um, I, I don't know. There's a, I'm pretty sure there's a, a, a highly venomous snake in that enclosure as well. And like you can see, I've seen, I, I've been to the Baltimore Aquarium. My sister lives in Baltimore and pretty much every time I go there, I, uh, I'm like, can we go to the aquarium? <laughs> Cause I just, I love their, that big enclosure. Um, there, there's some pretty cool dark frog enclosures there too. And, you know, being there kind of one of the, the OGs kind of getting in with dark frogs, it's always cool to go see what they've got going on now there. Um, I wish I would have went to like the, the international amphibian day there years ago and they had like a behind the scenes you can go see all the all the stuff behind the you know behind the, the facade which was really cool but um yeah in in that tank i, I just remember like I, there was one time i was there maybe in 2008 and uh, i remember seeing like the bush the i'm pretty sure it was a bushmaster um and there was like an orange galact just sitting on it like sitting on its on its body and it was like and that's something <laughs> Like just sitting there and the snake didn't seem bothered at all. I, I don't know how the dynamics work there. Um, and obviously who knows if they just are like, eh, snake got another one. Let's, let's replace it and throw another frog in there. I don't know if the snake just does not try to eat those. Um, if it knows somehow that they're talks, I, I don't really, I know there's, there's been studies on color and stuff like that, but I know snakes don't normally, they don't normally uh, use color or anything, right? I'm not a snake guy, but well, you know, I know you are. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of variation. Um, I mean, a, a bushmaster is a pretty big 
snake. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're not really colored like bright green unless there's something I'm missing. I, I think you're thinking of like um, I think it's a species of eyelash viper that are like no oh. no this this is it's it's not a bright green uh, snake. Oh okay okay. And and it doesn't stay in the trees like it's on the ground. All right. I mean, it's, like a, and it's, it was like coiled up, coiled yeah. up on the ground. That's a big snake. Like a, that's a really big snake. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Um, I know that whole tank was basically a Brazilian biotype uh, or biotope. Is it tope? Whatever. I'm not smart. Um, there's, but there was a Brazilian highly venomous snake. Then you had the Brazilian uh, Galactonatus, and then those bicolors are also in Brazil. Um, well, there are bicolors are in multiple places, but, um, Brazil being one of them. So like the whole, that whole tank, and I think there's like a, some sort of script above it, like, you know, information where it talks about, you know, Brazilian, um, that whole tank was like Brazilian, which I've got a picture of it. I'll send it to you, but it, it's, uh, it's really cool. But so, you know, stuff like that, I'm sure, you know, that, yes, I think they, they, they planned that out very well. and um, you know, I'm sure there was a lot of trial by error there as well. And that's why I say, unless those, um, I don't know how often bicolors really go down or if they mainly feed off of the branches. I don't know how they feed. I don't know enough about bicolors in general, but that's why I was saying I would guess those were tong fed. Um, you know, you could feed them probably, I don't know how, I mean, they'll feed, they'll eat like pinkies and stuff, but um, that that's my guess is they were just tong fed where they, stay up on those branches the majority of their life and they just look like little gargoyles. So, you know, stuff like that, you know, that, that's one of the cases where I could, you know, you could, you could have um, a bigger tree frog and dart frogs housed together, but you just got to really plan it out. Like I say, either with tongue feeding or bull feeding, bull training, stuff like that. Um, where those, those dart frogs don't really pop up on the menu for them. You know what I mean? I tongue feed, um, I've, I've tongue fed a lot of tree frogs actually over the years and the, the, the cup, the, the cup training is, is good. I mean, it's, it's the least invasive. You don't, you don't have to worry about it coming into contact with the tongs, but I mean, once you kind of condition them, I mean, obviously it's not, it's not natural, but like once you kind of condition them to get used to it, it's, yeah. it's, it's pretty easy. Like my white tree frog, I just, I tongue feed him. He, yeah. He's kind of, but I, I'm not feeding him crickets. I'm feeding him doobie roaches. So yeah, there's, there's more insect than there is tong with like small crickets. I could see it being a little bit difficult, sure. but I mean, as I mean, the, the bicolor, I, I don't know enough about bicolor to really comment, but, yeah, um, same. It, I, 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 <laughs> go ahead. No, I just, I feel like, um, a lot of that is just like. Uh, I'm trying to think of an example. Like, uh, I mean, this is going to sound like out of left field, but like, you know, OSHA, which is, you know, the governing body yeah. that regulations regulates like workplace, workplace safety. Yeah. Um, they talk about different ways to avoid incidents. And one of them is, is engineering controls. And there's other different types. Basically, if you set up a situation in such a way that someone can't cross a barrier or someone cannot physically reach equipment you substantially eliminate the risk. So just by having a tank that is so large, you have the potential to limit that interaction because you've created two, like I said, like two completely different, um, you know, climates inside of a large, a large tank, 
with enough of a gradient that, you know, like a lot of people seem to get their idea, get the idea in their head that they can have a communal tank with multiple different species like red eyes and, and, and yeah. tanks and stuff like that in a relatively small tank. And like by relatively, gallons. yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a big tank, you know, and the more you stock it like that, people are like, oh, why are you critical of cohabbing? I'm not critical of cohabbing. I'm critical of cohabbing in small confined Un- quarters. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, like, it's not ideal. In yeah. Unideal settings. Yeah. Like if I was to go to giant stadium with you, I mean, yep. you could chase me around all day. You're never going to get me. I but, might catch you. <laughs> <laughs> but if we're if we're in one place, it's it's harder to get away, and everyone can't get comfortable. So, like right. the, the times that I've I've t- discussed cohabbing, I've usually put it in the reference of, you know, an excessively large tank that's well planned, and like the OSHA analysis analysis with the the engineering controls, you, you know, you've got engineering controls in place where you're not going to have, or you're going to lessen the likelihood because you always can have it of some kind yeah. of unhealthy competition. Of course. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I totally agree with that. And it it makes all the sense in the world. Um, you know, it's nothing's going to be, obviously, no glass box or wood box or whatever box material you want to make your vivarium or paludarium out of. Nothing is going to, you know, replicate the actual jungle. That's just not possible. But the bigger the space, obviously the the less stress that the stressed frog can escape like or, or the the less the less stress it'll experience like it, it has more of a distance to kind of run away from the frog that's holding down his position in, in his his little uh, area that he's trying to say this is mine don't come here um the further the frog that that other frog the the uh, the non-dominant frog uh, the further it can get away the, the less stressed it's going to be, you know, if, if you're in a 30 gallon tank, I don't care how many visual berries you have, that frog can still see the other frog and it can still, if it's claiming an area that's, you know, too large then that little frog, that the one that's getting, getting, uh, you know, bullied, it's, it's always going to be getting bullied. It can't get away. And that's usually when you see all the, you know, it may look fine for a week or two. And then, you know, you go see, you're like, Oh, it looks pretty thin. It's like, yeah, cause it's stressed. Its immune system is basically non-existent now, and whatever parasites were in this inside of it, they've now taken over, and that frog is in need of being separated like yesterday. Um, you know, that's usually one of. I mean, besides like temperature drops or spikes, you know, that's usually the the cause of parasites. You know, because all the frog. I mean, you're not going to have. I mean, someone may claim that they have frogs and they, they breed frogs in the hobby with zero parasites, but that's just not possible, um, in my opinion. There's there's some parasites in, in every single frog, every single species out there, every single frog out there. So, but the the you know the reason it's okay is because their immune systems are able to to fight that you know whatever the fight that issue and. And you know, maintain a healthy weight and strength, and their immune system is working. So it's that's how it works in the jungle as well. There's parasites in the jungle for sure, but it's not stressed out, and its immune system is working properly. But when they get stressed, that immune system drops significantly, um, and that's usually when it all all, all the stuff goes awry. But um, yeah, it's just you know, and and so everything we're talk- we've talked about so far. Um, you know, mainly with the tree frogs and dart frogs or glass frogs and atelopus, 
that's all, um, you know, stuff, paludarium, um, you know, that's just like a, a cohabiting for a paludarium. I don't, I don't know why you'd really want to cohab tree frogs in a, um, <clears throat> in just a regular vivarium that doesn't have a paludarium or like, you know, something like the red-eyed tree frogs or craspidobus or stuff like that. I think, you know, tree frogs seem to be more of a suitable, suitable choice, um, animal for, you know, something that's got a significant amount of water where, like I said, dart frogs aren't really known for hanging out by big bodies of water. Um, so that, that's, you know, that's why I've been talking in terms of paludariums, but if you're doing a big, big vivarium, like a six foot wide, is that what it is? Yeah. Six foot by two foot by four foot. You know, there's a, there's quite a bit of, of thinking if you do want to do a cohab in a vivarium, or if you just want to have a single species too, um, you know, you could, there's all kinds of stuff you could do there where, you know, if you just want to have one species, you could, you could go one of two ways, you know, you can do a, a frog that has like a really good group dynamic, like relax are known to be pretty decent group frogs. Um, Terribilis and phyllobates are known for being really good group frogs. Your, your favorites, uh, Santa Isabel's. Known known for being some good group group dart frogs. Um, I know people talk. I mean, I never see erratus whenever I've kept them, so I can't really judge on that. But I know people say erratus do okay. Some Leucomella species as well. Um, not the fine spots. I have the fine spots, and I've tried them in groups, and they scrap, man. They go, they go at it. So I, I don't think the fine spots are good. But I know some people have success with the uh, with the Lukes doing a group. You know, um, where those are all known for being decent group frogs, you know, you could, in a tank that size, I mean, I think it'd be pretty cool to have like, you know, 20, 20 terribilis and something like that, um, would be, would be epic, you know, just frogs everywhere. I'm sure there's going to be some scrapping with that many frogs. Um, but if you keep an eye on it, like I had 10, I had 10 terribilis in a, what is that? 80 gallons. So, and, and I had no fighting. I don't have 10 now because people needed males or females. I'm like, yeah, I got an extra one. So I sent some out, but there was no fighting. They were all, I had successful breeding, multiple females in there, multiple males. So I had no issues with that. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I say like 20 is a lot of frogs for one tank, but that tank is, you know, what's that? Probably like, four to five times the size of the one I have 10 frogs in. So, you know, it's definitely doable. Same thing with Galax, you know, 20 Galax in a, I don't know how big that tank is. What is that? Like 350 or 400 gallons. I'm not quite sure. I, I figured out that the cubic, I think it's like 48 cubic feet. So, uh, I mean, at, at, <laughs> I mean, well, this is the other thing. And you know what? We always think about tanks and gallons we yeah. really shouldn't be because we're not putting, we're not filling the thing up with water. I know. I got you. I got you. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> it's, it's cubic, cubic footage. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I often wonder how much the size changes group dynamics as well, because in a smaller tank, frogs can stake out a territory, but is it really, you know what I mean? Is, is like, you know, six inches by six inches, really a territory is a foot yeah. by a foot, really a territory. 
Are they right. going to defend a bigger area? Are they going to become more territorial, less ter- territorial? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, then you also wonder in something that big, are the territories ever going to change? Like, are they going to be like, you know what? I'm tired of this area. Cause I'm sure they don't just hold down like one area for their entirety of their life in the jungle. I'm sure they lose and they like a different spot this year or next year. You know, I don't know if that's, that's a, a fact or not, but that's just my guess is I wouldn't think for their entire life, they're going to hold down one spot in the jungle. So you wonder in a tank that size, like, do they switch? And do they go like, well, I'm not holding down this area. I'm going to go to this area now. And then they fight or something with the male that was already holding down a new area. Um, yeah, that's something you got to wonder about too. It could be but, anything really. I mean, you know, I just, I was thinking about the Adelopis and mm-hmm. um, what I've, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to misquote anybody, but I, I believe what I heard was that the males and the females occupy different regions depending on like what I think the males hang out closer to the water and the females kind of just disappear inland. So you have to ask yourself if you had antelopes in a smaller tank, you'd probably see them more often because you wouldn't give them that opportunity to go hide the way they would naturally. Right. And the the same thing with like the territorial frogs, like maybe you'll see more territorial behavior or, or less. I don't know. It's just all that extra space. It really, it really yeah. changes everything that we know as, you know, common knowledge. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I thought about that too. And, you know, um, like Nick, Nick Stacy, he, he does, you know, he keeps his male and his females separate, um, when they're not breeding. So he keeps them all separate. And then when he breeds them, he introduces them to their little, their little stream tank, their little river set up and they breed. Um, again, that's not something I'd ever want to do. I'm not interested in like the, you know, dry chamber, wet chamber type of thing. I like doing just an all-in-one type of setup. Um, but you know, that's neither here nor there, I guess. Um, so, so yeah, that's something I thought about. And then, you know, whenever I go see like uh, zoos or aquariums or anything that do keep the Adelopus, the tanks are very, very sparsely planted. Like my 300 gallon is very heavily planted. There's lots of big aeroids. Lots of vines, lots of small aeroids. There's two huge bromeliads, and then there's a few smaller Vresia bromeliads. Um, and it's there's a million places them to hide. Whenever I'm at like zoos and aquariums, it's like there's some really small vines and just a bunch of moss, and then they'll have like a little street, little river or pond area. Um, but all the frogs are able to be seen because there's really no a lot of them. When I'm looking for mine, I find them in the plants. They're all hiding in plants and behind plants where you know, at these, these, uh, you know, professional aquariums or whatever you want to call them, these, uh, zoo establishments, they, they're, they're not able to hide really. So maybe that's why everyone just says they're super bold. <laughs> it's like, well, if they don't have anywhere to hide, of course they're going to be bold. Um, but yeah, it, interesting species for me, you know, and maybe I don't want to say all Adelopus, you know, just maybe it's just the Balios for me. Maybe they're not, um, suitable for the type of tank i have them in for them to be as uh you know close to their true behavior in the wild um so whatever whatever behavior they're doing for me is not super enjoyable at this point um so that's that's why i did decide to sell them but um still really really cool animals and you know whoever they go to uh the guy they're going to maybe they'll work out exactly as he planned and it'll be a win-win for everybody. 
but uh yeah it's uh you know it's just something like i say trial you know trial by error um you just gotta try some stuff and see how it goes and i've the uh with the the balios are had them for uh, over a year and a half and i think that's a long enough trial to for me to decide that that they weren't for me but um yeah yeah, like I say, it's it's every every case is gonna be different, every tank they go into, every setup, it's all you know, you're gonna have probably a different behavior out of in each situation. But what about the Crasmidopus? Like what are some pros and some cons? Because for me, like I'm 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 in bed at nine o'clock. I'm not really up late, so I really wouldn't have a chance to actually observe them. Like like Mike Novi's up to all like all hours of the night, so he's able to go and see these things when he wants. Yep. He, he was talking to me about it. He goes, why don't you get some? I'm like, dude, I'm like, I'm in bed just when you're like getting up. And um, <laughs> so they wouldn't be practical for me. But like, what are some pros and cons if you wanted to? I mean, again, this is a big tank. It's an expensive tank. Craspidopus yeah. is, is a, you know, kind of a trophy frog. Yep. What are some pros and cons to Craspidopus? Um, well, you know, and I love, you know, Mike's a, a good buddy of mine. I talk to Mike all the time. Um, yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's just a creature. <laughs> it's the best way to explain him. He's everything he does is, uh, is to me, I'm just like, wow, that's just insane, man. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm a night out too. Um, so I do get to see them, but, uh, pros and cons, you know, I, I'm not a tree frog expert by any means. I'm not a, I've only had the craspid opus for about, uh, six or seven months. Um, so I can't really comment on that at this point, but what I can say compared to like when I, I've only kept white tree frogs, uh, red eyed tree frogs and the glass frogs and the craspidopus. Um, I love red eyed tree frogs. I think they're, you know, an, an icon, um, for all frogs in general. But, um, to me, they were so needy and in terms of just cleanliness, constant cleaning, um, I tried like adapting them because, you know, Mike, Mike and a lot of the other tree frog guys do, they keep everything super sterile, super clean, um, which is really great for the frogs. And I, I agree that that's the way they should do it. You know, when you're selling animals that are, you know, um, needy for things being, you know, for cleanliness, you know, you want to, your only job is basically to, to provide the, the healthiest animal you can provide to somebody and the cleanest that it can be. So, I think they do it the right way, but for, for keepers and just people that aren't, you know, professionally breeding them and releasing them to, you know, by the, the thousands to the, to the public, um, that's not an ideal way of keeping frogs on paper towels with a clean water dish and, you know, nothing else. It's, even though it's very healthy for the frogs, it's not enjoyable as a hobbyist. Um, I don't think, but my personally, I just don't think that's enjoyable. So. Um, what I did with the Craspidopus, I got mine young. Um, they were maybe a month or two months. They're they're about an inch inch long when I got them, maybe inch and a half. Um, and um, two were captive bred um, European line, and two of them were farm raised imports from Peru. And I, I kept them both separate, and I kept them both sterile for two months. Paper towels I changed daily. Um, water dish I wiped down and cleaned daily. I was cleaning the walls, like the the walls of the tub, the plastic sterilite tub. 
Um, I was cleaning that every two to three days, wiping it down. Um, so I kept them really sterile for about two months. Um, and then after that, I combined all four frogs together in a larger tub. And I switched from paper towels to the sponge filter mat. Um, so no paper towels in that. And then I did, I cut like a, a hole in the sponge filter mat where I could set the water dish. So it was kind of level with the, the ground area. Um, I added a piece of ghost wood and I added a, uh, a plant. <laughs> so, you know, I, I call this setup that I currently have mine on. It's semi-sterile. Um, you know, there's no substrate, no leaf litter. That wood is definitely not sterile. I didn't, you know, I didn't sterilize it or anything like that. Um, I still clean the water dish every other day and I spray down the sponge filter mat once a week. And, you know, the plants, I haven't scrubbed the plants down at all. So I'm in my mind, what I'm, what I've been doing is slowly adapting them to a non super sterile environment. Um, and they're, they seem healthy as oxes. They're nice and chunky. I don't see anything wrong with their color, their skin. They're really vibrant. They're really active. The males have been calling recently. So, um, it's been, it's been successful so far. So, you know, the reason, and it's not like I'm like being lazy or neglecting my, it's not like that I'm like, you know, I, I could definitely clean the, clean the, the walls every day and spray down that wood like crazy every, every week. But I don't want to do that because I feel like that's putting them back in that super sterile mode. So um, the pro that I can say about crass, but getting back to your original question, uh, the pro that I can say about them, as opposed to like red eyes, is these guys have been transitioning into a, a non-sterile environment um, much better in my experience than the red eyes. Because I tried doing that with red eyes and it was just like, yeah, they're like, nah, buddy, not happening, dude. Um, they started to look like crap and they just weren't weren't doing anything they weren't looking good and um so i I had to go back to sterile when i had them before i sold them um so yeah i can say that about these guys now one of the good things about these guys as well as opposed to like red eyes or some of the other leaf frogs is most leaf frogs sleep on the backs like the glass frogs as well they sleep on the backs of leaves um and they kind of like to sleep vertically on the back so if you're looking at a tank, an empty t- if the tank just has some red eyes in it and it's daytime, you may see one if they're on the glass or something. Um, but the majority of them are going to be sleeping on the back of the leaves and you're not going to see them. Uh, where the craspidopus, uh, which Mike, I think Mike's talked about this in, in previous, that they like to lay flat. Um, so they'll use, you know, th- they're, they're able to be, to, to, be, to be seen in the daytime. Now they're just sleeping. But they still, I mean, these frogs still look cool even when they're sleeping. You see the fringe and they're spotting and all that stuff. Um, so they're still visible in the daytime. They're big frogs and they're sleeping, you know, kind of right in front of your face. It's like, oh, those things look cool. And then someone, you, you wake it up and someone's like, whoa, holy crap. Um, so that's another pro that I would say, um, you know, that, I, that I've experienced so far. Um, as opposed to some of the other tree frogs. So, you know, cons is that they're nocturnal. So you're not going to see them doing much in the daytime um, unless you you have them trying to breed. Uh, if you, you know, if I turn my rain system on for a few days, I'm sure I would see them going crazy in the daytime. But 
other than, you know, breeding, they're, they're going to be pretty inactive during the day. Um, but like if you're a night owl like me, my tank does have night lighting. Uh, I've got this like green, kind of this green glow to it. Um, and, uh, I'll be able to view them at night for sure. And I, I, I view them mine at night right now. Anyways, I have, a this little like clamp light type of thing. It's a, like a flexible neck and it's, it's got a red led in it. So I've, you might've been, um, and I've had that light on them since they were the day I got them and I brought them home so I could view them and get them used to night lighting. So, um, and I know people that have craspidopus and some of the cruzio hilo that they'll be sleeping, you know, out cold, bright, bright white light. And if you drop a cricket right in front of their face, they'll wake up and eat it. Like they snap at it. Um, lots of people I know say they've, they've all seen their, their craspy eat with lights on. So, um, they may not be as nocturnal as some of these tree frogs where it's like, if there's lights on, they ain't doing jack, you know? Um, so that's, that's what I'd say pros and cons about them. Another con is they're, they're pricey. <laughs> they are expensive. Um, but definitely, uh, arguably one of the, one of the grails of, uh, of tree frogs. They're, they're kind of a flagship, uh, flagship tree frog, if you will. They're definitely beautiful. But, oh yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt. And any, anytime someone's like, what are those things? They're like, oh, like people come over to the frog room all the time. I'm like, oh, those are, uh, those are my tree frogs and all. I, another good thing too. Yeah. I guess there's, there's more, more than just what I said. Um, they're pretty chill. Like when I remember when I'd wake red eyes up and show people, they were like bouncing off the walls, jump, like trying to get out of your hands. You can wake the craspidopus up and, it'll just want to actively sleep on your hand. Like they just want to go back to sleep and they'll sleep. You can just sit there with it in your hand and it'll, it'll get, it'll tuck itself back in and just be like, Oh, I'm just going to sleep here, man. And they literally will just chill. They're, they're a super, uh, at least so for the ones I have, um, really mellow tree frog. They're almost not as mellow as like, uh, you know, Novi used to, I used to, whenever I'd go to the show and see him there, he'd have, he had like baby bicolors and he would set them on his business card holder and like the business cards. And then he would just set the tree frog on it. And it would just sit there for the entire show. It, w- it wouldn't even try to move at all. And I'm like, is that a real frog? He's like, Oh yeah, it's a bi- bicolor. No, they don't do, they don't care. They're just going to sit here all day. They literally wouldn't move. Um, so not quite as chill as that, but um, for the leaf frogs that I've kept, uh, the craspidopus are definitely uh, super chill. So that's a cool thing. You don't kind of worry about them jumping all over the place which you know the red eyes it's like you, you pull one out to show somebody and then they jump and say you don't catch it and it lands somewhere dirty you're like oh here we go now this thing's gonna get all sick and nasty because it got dirty um yeah that's you know i love red eyes like i said but yeah they were just too clean for me yeah i i just i never really had the the attraction to the red eyes that some people do. I mean, the, the craspidopus intrigued me because I mean, at one point I never thought I would actually see one in real life. Yeah. And the, the, the bicolor, I've, I've kind of had a thing for, like, I'm like a big closet Philomedusa fan. Yeah. Cause I remember the first bicolor that I saw or what I think was a bicolor. It was about 1994 mm-hmm. at the shop that I worked at. We used to get everything that came in, you know, you got a price list and you check oh, stuff yeah. off the price list and they would send it to the store. I, I believe it was a bicolor and it only lasted like two days in the store yep. before it just, it just failed to thrive. But I think about a lot of the tree frogs, like the, the leaf frogs and, and possibly the red eyes. I'd imagine a tank that's like super duper big would probably be 
better for their well-being in the long term because yeah like the cleanliness thing in a smaller tank if a frog sits on the glass and sheds and yeah. stains it or it gets waste on something it's kind of limited in terms of where it can go whereas like in a, in a large tank i mean if you've got a six foot you know a six foot long branch yep it can move any length of that, you know, however long it wants. And it's, it's like, that was one of the things that Mike and I talked about last time I had him on the show. I'm, I'm due for another Mike episode. Um, we, we, we all are. <laughs> Mike's, Mike's great. Mike's one of those guys where I don't even edit the show. I just hit record and just, just let him, let him go. Cause yep. he's so insightful. But, um, like yep. what Mike was telling me was that, you know, like the dart frogs are on the ground. They're constantly coming into contact with substrate their bodies or whatever it is, they're just more accustomed to dealing with dirt and, and you know, filth, for lack of a better word. Exactly. Where the tree frogs don't come into contact with that. All their waste just falls down to the ground and, yep. and then becomes the, the terrestrial frog's problems. Yep. So, I mean, realistically, you could have a tree frog in a large enclosure and it, it you might not necessarily have to go through, I mean, you obviously you have to keep everything clean, but you might not necessarily sure. have to go through the rigorous... Yeah, work not that as you'd clean. Go, yeah, that you'd go through with, say, like, you know, a 30-gallon or a 40-gallon or, you know, right. whatever's comparable. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing with if you do a big tank and you do, like, a not just a misting system, but like I did in my 300, like a rain system, I mean, and you run that thing for 10 minutes, you know, one, one day a week, it's going to flush. It's going to be like what happens in the jungle. I mean... If there is, if they do have their waste on a branch or something like that, and it you get a torrential downpour, eh, it's going to get washed away. Pretty much the same way that you know the rain system would I mean, not the same exact way, but same idea of it's kind of flushing every. If there's you know if there's shed on some leaves or if there's you know their waste on the leaves and all this, it, it kind of rinses it all off. And same thing on the branches where it's sort of back to a clean environment and and what is you know one of the the biggest issues with tree frogs and people keeping them in super humid tanks um or even wet tanks is you know the respiratory issues and fungal infections and um because the tank's too small for to be able to regulate that that humidity where if you've got a tank like four foot tall and you can what's what's great about that is you have, if you've got a nice ventilation strip up, up top, it's not as humid up there. Um, and down below where all, you know, you're closer to like the, the drainage layer and you've got water there and heavily planted, it's, it's farther away from the light. It's going to be more humid there. So it's kind of the, the perfect scenario where it's, it's not going to be wet. If they're up high, it's not going to be wet, but it is going to be humid, not too humid. So that's why I think like the, the taller, bigger tank, tanks for tree frogs are, are ideal. Um, <clears throat> and it could be ideal for dart frogs too, because dart frogs don't, you know, we all talk about, they don't really like it super wet either. Not, maybe not quite as dry as some of the tree frogs, definitely not as dry as the, uh, the bicolors, which by the way, I do have, uh, I have the glass to build another 300 gallon. I, I got it a year ago. I was going to do a pair of orange Lamani in it, but that switched up. I have orange Lamani in a different tank now, but um, I've been seriously considering for the past two weeks about doing bicolors in that tank. Um, and, you know, I'm just, cause I keep going back to that Brazilian tank at, at uh, Baltimore Aquarium. I'm like, man, it'd be cool. Cause it's, it's a four foot tall tank. It's five foot wide and 24 inches deep, two foot deep. Um, 
it's like that'd be cool to have some some you know orange galax or something like that and and the bicolors in that tank would be really cool um and i wouldn't do that one really as a, a paludarium like i did my first 300 it would be more of a vivarium um with just a small little pond area um which i think could be really really cool um that tank that, that tank has been obviously i said i got the glass a year ago but it's been pushed to the back burner since i you know um decided to build the the rack system the new rack system and do three shelves so i've had some other tanks to build to complete the room first and then i'll do that big tank but i've got a spot for it and everything so i, I really think i'm going to do bicolors in it just because um i've seen it work with the galax at the baltimore aquarium so i think I think I'm out here enough and I'm, I'm privy enough with the, the dart frogs. Um, and I've got, you know, Novi and I'm friends with, uh, Jordan Andres too. So those guys can kind of help me and guide me with the bicolors. So it could be another big learning experience in the next, oh, I should have that tank done within the year. Uh, not, not 2022, but 2023. Um, so I, I do plan on doing that, which I'm excited for, I, you know, I even considered doing, um, in the big, the, the other big tank, which I guess this goes along with same thing with the one we're talking about doing a six by six by two by four. Um, you know, I, I thought about a giant group of familia, um, like bastimentos, like a cemetery bastimentos, you know, you've got a, an array of colors. You got red, orange, yellow, peach, gold dust. It's like the Skittles. And, um, you know, if you've got a, a, a really heavy female group, um, you know, I know people that do 2.9, 3.12 um, in, a, in a 18 by 18 by 24. And they just have a kajillion babies because they've got so many females tending all these frogs or tending all these tadpoles. I thought about doing that, too. That would be a cool just having a ton, a, a huge group of familial in a giant tank would be pretty awesome. You just got to be careful. You don't, you don't get too many males. Um, it, it would take a long time to sift through you know, only selling males and keeping all the females back. But, um, you know, that, that, that'd be a cool thing, um, to have a big group of Camilio or even like, a uh, you know, I know, I know Jared and I know some, uh, Jared Ruffing from Ruffing's Rantamea. And I know some people that keep, um, Rantamea decently in groups. My group experience with those was not well, uh, at least, the. I have the group of reticulata. I have a, I don't know what the d dynamic is, but I have four frogs and they're breeding successfully. They've been breeding for maybe four months, five months. I've had them for over a year. And uh, that's going well. But the Highland Serensis, I had a group of like nine. And I recently just gutted their tank. I sold their tank. And I moved them to one of my new tanks that I built. And I only had two frogs in there. So uh, two out of nine was not good. So those frogs, whatever, there must have been something going on with fighting. I never really saw those frogs. And they were in a spot in my frog room where I couldn't really get to them too, too often. I could just slide the door open, put some food in there, shut the door, and go, go on about my business. I wasn't really focused on breeding. I mean, I've, I've raised a few of those uh, tadpoles, but there was bromeliads in there, so I was just letting them raise them themselves. Um, but I'd hear calling often. So I know there was multiple males and multiple females, but I just didn't know what the dynamic was, but clearly whatever it was, it was not working well. I'll say that, uh, going from nine frogs to two. Um, but I still have a pair. So 
the pair I moved to the tank, they're just going to be in their tank and they're breeding again already in their new tank. So that's good news, I suppose. But uh, yeah, so to me, I don't know enough about Ranitamea. Um, I've only kept the Veradero imitators. I've kept green imitators and then Reticulata and Highland Serensis. And, um, imitators did okay for me. Uh, I think I had four. They were okay and the Reticulata are okay with four, but those Highland Serensis were not a good group frog for me. Uh, but I know everyone's got different experiences, but, um, the, the other thing I was going to talk about too, um, with the, the large format tank is if you were going to keep a single pair of dart frogs in there, like a male and a female in a giant, in a, you know, however big that tank is 400, let's just say it's, let's say it's 380 gallons. Um, I think that like Histrionica or Lamani would be probably the, the, the only species I would keep in a tank that size because they, they do, um, they thermoregulate a ton. Like, uh, the, the Lamani DVD, the uh, Andreas is, is talking to, you know, one of the Colombian guys there and he's saying, he's like, Oh yeah, it gets down to like 60 degrees at night. And the frogs, they move up. They'll move up the mountain, they'll come down the mountain. They'll move up the mountain, they'll come down the mountain. So they constantly thermoregulate and move up and down a lot. Um, and they will use every square inch of that tank. I mean, they'll go everywhere. The male's going to be walking around, strutting his stuff everywhere, climbing and calling. Um, you got bromeliads midway up the tank or high up in the tank. So the female's going to be taking tadpoles up there, and then they're going to be feeding on the ground. So... Um, I think that would be the most enjoyable species to keep in a single pair in a tank that big. And I mean, I have my, my small form, um, redhead histrionica there in, in a tank in a four by two by three, it's 180 gallons, not quite as big, but I just have a pair in that tank and they use every square inch of that tank. Um, I see them in new locations every day. They have places they like to feed. So I usually have a couple spots. I put flies where, where the male and the female will feed. Um, and then I have a space where I put food for froglets. But, yeah, they, they go everywhere. They're midway in the tank, upway in the tank, each corner of the tank, on the ground, literally everywhere. So, um, you know, you may have to – it's a general term saying histrionica or lamani or large obligate. It's kind of general there. You know, there are certain – each animal is different, I suppose, but um, there are certain locales that are known for being more bold than others. Um, you know, my small form redheads are, are pretty bold. I see them out a lot. They don't really care when I slide the door open. Um, but the large forms are, are really bold and they're bigger. So I, I would say that large forms would be, would be uh, cooler in that tank because sometimes people are like, I don't see anything. I'm like, ah, oh, they're little frogs. Like I'll have to, I'm like, they're like, I can't find anything. Like, ah, give me a second. And I find them right away, but I know where to look for them. Um, you know, they're also kind of dully colored. They're not like a, you know, a bright red or bright orange or yellow. You know, it's like they're a dark body and they have tiny little spots and like an orangish reddish head. So if you don't know what you're looking for, you know, they're not like a vibrant blue either. So sometimes people just have trouble seeing those, but um something to consider too that i've i've 
you know, sometimes I'm like, man, I wish I had those frogs in a smaller tank. It's harder to manage breeding frogs in a tank that big. Um, it's way harder to be able to, to constantly keep your humidity levels right. I mean, you know, there's just more ventilation and, you know, it's, it's, it's harder to, to keep like, you know, a smaller tank, if you get it dialed in at 73 degrees every day and the humidity, it, it's easy to keep that tank consistently on those levels. We're in a big tank. It's not as easy. So you got to kind of figure out some stuff there as far as how much to mist, what kind of lights to use, um, you know, all that stuff. But, uh, you know, froglets in, in a tank that size are hard to locate one. So it's like, sometimes you don't even know if there's froglets in there. Um, and then one day you're just like, Oh, there's one. Looks like you did well. Um, uh, but you know, with histrionica and Ufaga, you know, if, if you don't, I mean, I don't feed my histrionica springtails ever my, my adults. So, but when I know there's a froglet or I see a froglet, they come out on the bromeliad and I'm like, Oh, there might be froglets in there. So I'll blow a ton of springtails in there for them to eat. But if you don't notice that and there's just they've already come out of the water and you don't blow springtails in there and they're pretty much the only thing they're eating is like stunted flies here and there, they may not do well. So it's it's definitely harder um, breeding them. You know, I have I have much more success breeding uh, my histrionica in the smaller tanks, not not because of anything, um, you know, in the actual like parameters, but. It's just the the monitoring, I guess. It's it's easier, you know, in a in a thirty gallon tank. It's much easier to to locate babies or see babies. There's less places to hide, less places for them to go, than you know, a, a, a three or four hundred gallon tank. You know what I mean? Yeah, and you you bring up a good point. The um, the froglets being able to find food. One of the things that Bill was talking to me about when we did episode one was how he set up a feeding station because yep. the tank was so big that if you dump a cup of fruit flies in there, they're just going to dissipate and be completely gone. How yep. would, how would you address that issue? Like what kind of a feeding station would, cause I mean with the tree frogs, we talked about the cup feeding, which could remedy that for the tree frogs, yep. but for like, like glass frogs and, and dart frogs, how would you, how would you accommodate that in such a big tank? I, I would do the same thing he's talking about. I mean, I do that in my small tanks too. I'll put a little chunk of banana little banana slice in there for flies to congregate to oftentimes it becomes the the feeding station for the adults and and not the the froglets um but the fro you know the, the adults don't eat every single last fly there so um but what's what's good about feeding stations and bananas and stuff or apples whatever you i mean i think bananas is, is probably the choice for everybody that most people use um is um you know, not only do the flies congregate there and it creates a, a place where the frogs know there's going to be food, but the flies will breed there as well. And then the larvae come out of the banana and, um, the adults and the frogs will eat those larvae. It's, uh, very, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little more substantial of a meal than, you know, basically an exoskeleton of a, of a fly. So frogs get chunkier and healthier. And, um, I, I think, Feeding, feeding stations in any tank are a good idea, but yeah, in a big tank for sure. Um, that's always, always key. Um, I even do, you know, I'm sure people see a lot of my videos and photos and stuff that I post. You'll see like a, a culture just in a tank kind of on its side. 
that I'll put, uh, sometimes I put older cultures, um, that are like on their way out, but not completely gone. Uh, sometimes I try not to put ones that are like about to boom because it's just going to be too many flies and cause stress. But sometimes I have no choice. And, um, cause I'm like leaving for a vacation or something. I'm going to be gone for a few days. I'm like, ah, I don't even, I just have booming ones right now. I'll throw a booming one in there. <laughs> and, you know, I, luckily so far I've never had an issue from that. Um, but I'll come back from vacation. The frog is just like, it's just, a, I mean, <laughs> so fat it's just like wow dude you've just been sitting here just chilling and eating potato chips basically for five days straight um because i mean they're just little beefcakes um and i've tried that you know when i've had like a sick frog or something that's one that's not doing well and that's not the answer that doesn't fatten it up um you usually it's even worse if a frog's skinny and and it's eating and not, not gaining weight and i just keep adding more flies it stresses them out and then they, they go south even more. Um, so usually you have to find, I always think whenever a frog's sick, you got to kind of try to, uh, try to move it to a new location, um, a clean, clean new location with a bunch of springtails, fresh, fresh sphagnum, sphagnum moss and fresh, uh, fresh leaf litter. Uh, I use, I sterilize whenever I have like a sick frog that I'm trying to move to a new enclosure or a, a new tub. I do sterilize the, uh, the leaf layer by sterilize i just mean fill up the bag with water and then dump out the water and then put it in the microwave for five minutes um i just feel like that's doing it you know going a little extra step to make sure that there's nothing on those leaves that's going to harm the, the already um you know weak immune system frog so i think that's important but yeah an old fruit fly culture you know people talk about mites and how they want no mites in their cultures i actually like I don't like mites. I mean, everyone hates mites, but, um, you know, as long as they're not crashing my cultures, um, and I'm still able to feed out of them for multiple weeks after three, three, four weeks. And then there's mites on the cup. I'm like, all right, cool. I'll throw that in a, in a tank where there's little baby, tiny pamelia or froglets from histrionica. And they're, they be eating those. So they, they definitely chunk up on those and it just gets them in the, in the process of eating. Um, and get some sooner, you know, move, you can move them on to, to fruit flies sooner than, than having to keep doing springtails for weeks and weeks and weeks. Cause that's not fun either. But, um, yeah, I, I think, uh, it's, it's not, it's not so much the, the, the feeding in general that that's hard to monitor in a big tank, but, um, like I was saying, with, with just the, the histrionica and familia and stuff like that. Unless you could also just say, well, Troy, maybe your uh, maybe your microfauna, you know, your your bioactivity is not bioactive enough in that tank, and you should you should be you know not a healthy you don't have a healthy springtail environment or something. But um, you know, I don't care who anybody. I mean, the springtails aren't going to be as prevalent as as they are when you blow five million in there you know that's i I blow a ton of springtails in when there's when there's froglets and and baby histrionica but um you know if you do have a super booming uh microfauna you know habitat in that tank i guess you don't really need to worry because those those froglets are going to be able to snack on that stuff all day um because they will go down the leaf litter and that's where they're going to find all of it but i do some of all my tanks I, I, i tell people i'm like 
Yeah, I mean, if I lift the leaf up, there's not going to be like 7,000 springtails. I'll probably see like 20, 20 springtails crawling around. But, hey, that's food for the frogs. So to me, that that's healthy enough. I don't think if, you know, certain pockets in the jungle, if you're looking under leaves, you'll find a ton of springtails and some you're not going to find much at all. So it's, I think, normal um, to have, have, you know, a, a booming population or a not-so-booming population in certain areas of the tank at certain times of the year, too. So... Uh, which also is, again, replicating nature as much as it can. Yeah, as far as the old cultures go, I, I couldn't imagine not using them. I mean, every, every tank that I have downstairs, every yeah. one of them has an old culture in it, and they're just picking off those maggots and, like, you know, yeah. rogue flies. And the mites, I know mites are, like, a contentious, no one likes mites, no one wants to be involved with mites, but yeah. they eat the mites. And absolutely the, the conversation that I had with, um, Juan Santos, uh, I can't remember the episode, but I, I remember that. Yeah. He, he talked very extensively about how significant mites are in the diet of wild frogs and how they, they consume mites constantly. Yep. So, I mean, I, I don't want to compare apples and oranges because obviously wild mites are not the same as grain mites, but they yep. do eat them. And you know what? Yeah. The f- by keeping those old cultures in there and allowing them to just kind of forage, it yep. kind of keeps the frogs a little bit. It gives them something to do. And yep. they their weight is perfect. Since I've started like re- kind of religiously doing that, I have not been... I mean, they have constant food. Even if it's just mites or whatever or springtails get in there, they have something constant. And they're not waiting for me to dump you know, 20 flies or 50 flies in there, however often, once every day. I mean, they, they really do eat constantly in the wild. So yeah. I can't well, imagine man. that, you know, not, I mean, something is better than nothing. So. Yeah. And it's not like you need to worry about like, if the frogs get so accustomed to that, that they're not going to eat the dusted flies. It's like, no, no, no. They're still going to eat the dusted flies too. This is just, you know, the, the dusted flies are basically, it's just uh, they are they are a way for them a vessel for them to get some vitamins. That's basically all they are um, at, at that point because you know they're they're feeding all day on flies and maggots and mites and whatever, but they're not getting you know the calcium or the vitamin A. But they one hundred percent. Even if they're sitting in a, in an old culture eating and picking stuff off, if you throw freshly dusted flies next to the cup. Where they can't even really see it, they well, they probably see it through the cup. They're going to come right out of that cup and start pounding those dusted flies. You know, it's, it's no question. It's not like they, you know, because that's one of the cons I've heard people about bull feeding with with tree frogs is that they can get super lazy, and that you know they're only going to just if if you don't put that feeder cup close to them, they're going to look and be like, man, man I'm just saying it. And they they never hunt. They don't actually. You know, they become inactive in the tank as far as, you know, moving around the tank and, you know, how they, you know, would act <laughs> in the jungle. It's not, uh, you know, they just sit there. They'll wake up and then be like, eh, I don't see any food. And then they close their eyes and go back to bed. I think Novi told me that exactly. Um, so that was one of the things you just got to watch is, is they can get super lazy. Um, well, Mike even said they can get super lazy even if you don't pull feed them. They just get lazy. At least the craftsman open seats they told me, but um, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think uh, any anything else that's um, 
important or worthy of talking about for for stocking a large tank like that. I mean, well, I'll tell you what, let's let's just do like a quick shootout. Okay, couple of, couple of minutes on each frog, and we'll just kind of yeah. run through what we discussed so far. Just yeah. real quick pros and cons, and whether or not the species would be good in this size of a tank. Like, let's start off. Let's start off with, with terabellus. Let's just say that you go with one of the larger phylobates species. Uh, terabellus is probably the biggest. What are okay. some, just real quick, like, what's your opinion on on those? Are we doing this in a, in a vivarium or paludarium? In in a in a well, we'll say this is in a in a vivarium. We'll, we'll eliminate okay. the water feature for for any dart frogs. Uh, okay, cool. Um, yeah, I think I think they would be an ideal um an ideal animal to choose for for a large tank like that um for multiple reasons besides them being just uber bold um they are always going to be on display and you know terrapils kind of get this bad rap where people put them in you know uh, uh 36 by 18 by 18 or 36 by because they're like they don't they don't move up high they never go up high they're always on the ground which I have mine in a 24-inch tall tank. They are all over that thing. I've got a huge ledge up up higher in the tank. Like there's pieces of wood, and it's a whole nother like land area. They're up there all the time, and that's where they always breed as well. I've got two coconut huts on the ground, two coconut huts up high. They've only laid on the ground one time in two years. Every other time, which is dozens of times, they've laid eggs. Um, it's up top. They always go up top. So. I think in a big tank like that, people may see terribilis in a different light um, where they may go like, whoa, I thought these things only stay on the ground. It's like, do you know how ridiculous you sound saying that? Um, like, it's, it's so silly to me when people say like, you know, tanks or tanks or terribilis, they don't, they don't, they're not a broil. It's like, well, yeah, they're not 10 feet up in the air, but, you know, we're talking three, four feet or five, yeah, three, four feet. They'll definitely inhabit all that. If, if there's flat areas for them to hang out up top, they're going to hang out up top there. Um, so I think you'll see Terrabilis in a different light. They're extremely bold. Um, they've got, you know, if if you're somebody that likes an audible call, you're going to like the Terrabilis because they have a loud call. Um, to me, honestly, they are one of the, the most ideal display frogs for a big tank or a medium tank or... I wouldn't keep them in a small tank. I don't think anything should be in a small tank. But um, so I, th- I think they're an ideal dart frog. They do well in groups, so you can have a bunch of them in there. Um, if you want to be somebody that really ticks off the hobby, you could throw the orange ones, the mint ones, the black foots. You could throw in the yellow ones. Now, you, really now you're trying off. to get you me could, canceled. <laughs> you could just take <laughs> off a bunch of people if you want to do that. Um, not all seriousness. I mean, <laughs> you, you you could, um, and it pro- it wouldn't be a problem unless they bred, and then you're 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 going. You know, people are gonna have they're gonna have their way with you. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I, that's why I think they they would be an ideal frog um, for for a large format vivarium. Yeah, send send all hate mail to Troy Goldberg, <laughs> courtesy hey. courtesy of Troy's Tropical Garage. I didn't say you should. I said you could. With great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> you could do it. Yeah. I don't. I don't have it. Honestly, I don't have any cons. Um, for I, I, you know, unless you're someone that wants a quiet frog, that's the only. But I mean, you've got if you. This is a large format tank. It's a display tank. So, 
not something you should have. I mean, I guess you could have in your bedroom, but most people are going to put display tanks somewhere in a main living space um, where the call, an audible call is just going to add to the the coolness of the overall project. Um, so yeah, I, I honestly don't have any cons for them. Um, I'm trying, I'm really trying hard to think of one. I got, okay. The only con I can think of is that if you've got 20 mint terabilis, it's a lot of food. <laughs> that's a lot of food. You're going to have to feed them. That's the only con. Agreed. That's, 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 that's a lot of crickets. <laughs> a lot of crickets. <laughs> and that's, I'm, that, that's my story for them and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> All right. Uh, glass frogs, either as a sole inhabitant or, or cohab with, with something else. What, what would you, what's your take on them? Um, they could definitely be a sole inhabitant, I mean, solely uh, a glass frog tank, but honestly, I, I think they're the, they are the perfect cohab, uh, animal for, for a number of dart. I mean, because they, they, their have their habitat is so similar to dart frogs. They like it pretty much wet, you know, not wet, but you know what I'm saying? They like that, that pretty damp humidity that dart frogs love. Um, the glass frogs love it as well. The glass frogs are nocturnal. The dart frogs are diurnal. Um, they both eat fruit flies. You don't have to worry about crickets chewing on each other. So you can feed that tank strictly, um, <clears throat> strictly fruit flies, mainly the Heidi eye. Um, they will eat melanogaster too, but I'm just not sure how much those actually do for them. Um, so mainly Heidi eye and, uh, small crickets that, the dart frog, most dart frogs can eat small crickets as well. Um, so, so yeah, I think glass frogs are a great, the honestly, the perfect um, partner for, you know, dart frogs. Um, did I say dart frogs? Or I mean, I meant glass frogs if I didn't say glass frogs. Glass frogs are the perfect partnership with dart frogs. Okay. Um, what about Lemani? Um, oof. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Lamani would do do really. I mean, they're one of the coolest frogs to watch when they when they get comfortable and they're bold and they're breeding. They do like a dance almost. Um, how they just follow each other around. It's it's really cool to watch. But um, if the tank is set up right, I think a pair of Lamani would do really really well in a, in a tank, a, a a large format tank. Um, and like I was saying, like that's one of the frogs I was talking about. Like those are hit, or a pair of like a larger histrionica would, would be really cool in a tank that size. Most people, I think, though, you'd really need like an enthusiast for for a large large obligate um, to really be able to live with um, two frogs in a you know three hundred fifty gallon tank. Um, I keep changing the size because I don't know how I don't know what size it is. I'm just doing that to be funny. Um, but but yeah, I, I think they could do do perfectly well um, because they do thermoregulate so much. They could go up high if they want. They could go down low if they want. Um, they would breed in there, and the more space, the better for them, honestly. Um, so yeah, I think Lamani would also do do well. But um, again, not the most ideal for a large tank, just because of the monitoring. Um, you're not able to monitor those the babies as easy. Um, or even the adults for that matter. If there's a ton of places in the hide, it's like, you know, you don't really know where to look and make sure they're always looking good, especially if you're a beginner. Um, you know, I don't think a beginner should be buying Lamani anyways, but 
Uh, sometimes people just, they get in their head, that's what they want, and they're going to get them. Don't put them in a tank where you can't easily monitor them, you know, daily. So that's why I would say not not as ideal as the the tanks of the Terribilis. <laughs> All right, Craspidopus. Now, this is a big tank. Obviously, we put a lot of time, effort, money. You don't want to stick a $400, $500 frog in there if it's going to, like, drop dead. Right. Should you baby the Craspidopus first and then transition them, like you said, or would you potentially, I mean, again, this is just, everyone can do things differently, but yeah, would you, would you risk putting one in there right away or would you let it transition in the tub under clean so conditions a, for a while? That's a great question. Um, and I guess I have two answers for it. So if you're getting the Craspidopus from somebody, there are breeders um, there was a person in Canada that was breeding them like crazy. That was not keeping anything sterile. Um, they were breeding them in in a you know a pretty much bioactive. Ugh, I hate saying it. Um, in a, a, a bioactive paludarium, basically, and they were breeding like crazy. Now those frogs, if if you know you've got frogs from them, and the frogs the 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 babies were raised up to you know old juveniles, sub-adults, and they were raised in a, in a non-sterile environment, you could probably throw those, those frogs in a tank like that, like, like we're talking. Um, but if you are getting from somebody like, like Mike or Jordan or someone that, that's a, a sterile keeper, which most, most of the breeders are sterile, um, yeah, you, I, I think absolutely take the time to baby them for a few months. Um, you know, you'll be happy you did. I, at least you know if they weren't doing well, you're like, hey, I tried. I tried the best to slowly transition them into this. Um, didn't just give them a bunch of culture shock and stress and be like, you know, some of these, like if you get, if I got adults from Mike Novi um, that he's never bred or anything, and I, they're going to be like, what is all this stuff? What are these? What are these big green things? What is this? What is this wood and moss? I've never all it's ever seen in its entire life is a, a water dish and paper towels and the tub wall. That's or the glass wall. That's all it's ever seen. So, so you you gotta imagine like throwing a frog into a, a fully planted active tank. That frog's gonna be basically pooping its pants. Like what the heck is all this? You know, it'd be nuts. Um, it'd be like someone like us just randomly, someone's like, Hey man, I'm, I'm taking you to, to this place. You're like, okay. And they just throw you in like a, a padded walled room and there's nothing in there, but uh, a bowl of water. <laughs> and occasionally they give you food and you're like, why am I here? Like, what's going on here? Like if you had no idea, um, it's, it's super stressful and basically cold. I, I know people get mad when you, uh, when they say anthropomorphize with frogs and people. Um, but I'm just being, being silly to, to show an example. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there's, there's certain constants among any living thing. I mean, if you, you radically change any living thing's environment, it's going to elicit a stress response, whether it's, you know, right. whether it's a chronic thing or, or otherwise, but yeah, I mean, even back to, even bacteria respond negatively to, to negative stimuli so i don't really think it's anthropomorphizing yeah. but no absolutely and that's so that's why I, I mean i just think it's if you're getting frogs that are coming from someone a sterile breeder and you don't want to keep them sterile like i don't want to do that I, I see no enjoyment in that for me i've just like i'm like you know i'm going to take take the time and 
slowly transition them. There's plants in their current tub and there's, there's wood in their current tub. So they're not going to be all that shocked when they see this, all this stuff they can go crawl on and climb on. And, um, I know there's a buzzword that a lot of reptile people use. It's, uh, enrichment. It's a lot of enrichment in the tank, um, for them to, to, to enrich their lives. Um, you know, it's just that that's my personal belief on it and personal, um, opinion. So I don't know, I could be wrong, but we'll see here in, in a week or so when I throw these frogs in if how they do. So, um, when it's always good too. Now, if you did want to try that, you know, just taking sterile frogs and throwing them in a, in a fully planted, fully going, already cycled and everything's, you know, a tank like that. Um, you, you would just want to have a backup plan. I think it'd be very smart to have a backup plan, a tub set up, a sterile tub set up. That's like, if these frogs aren't doing well and you start noticing they get a couple spots on them that, that don't, that aren't regular spots that are like an ish, a skin issue, or you see them start getting skinny. It's like, all right, don't, you know, don't, don't mess with these super, I guess, expensive tree frogs. Um, just pull them, pull them and throw them in the tub. You know, they're going to do good in that sterile tub. So then it's like, all right, then you go back to the sterile tub and then slowly transition. Um, I just kind of skipped that step of throwing them in the tank, having them do bad and then go back. I just went right to the tub and I just had a plan for them from the get go to slowly transition them to this tank. And, um, so sorry about that super long answer, but, um, yeah, it just, it kind of has, you know, there's, I guess some stuff that's depends on where you're getting them from. No, that's, that's a good answer. I mean, you can't just, I mean, if, if we're going to kind of reinvent the wheel and, and talk about how different it's going to be to have everything in a big tank, you're going to have to tailor the approach of the species that you want to put in there. Exactly. exactly. So la- last question, species that's remained conspicuously absent throughout this, <laughs> this whole series. Mm. If you were to put, tanks in there mm-hmm. yes or no um yeah you i mean sure like it's definitely doable it's not that it's um a bad choice i just for me female tanks are just they're one of the most aggressive out of everything i've kept you know, male Pamilio can go at it. Male Ufaga can go at it pretty, pretty good. But like sometimes the females, when they're, when they're going female tanks, when they start going, I'm like, all right, guys, break it up. I'll like open the door, try and just like move my hand around in there to get them to like spook and separate. And they're like, dude, I don't care. You're in here. I'm taking this chick down. <laughs> and they're just like going at it. And <clears throat> I just, I know that's causing a ton of stress for the frog that's getting bullied. So I've, I kept, I guess when I was just a keeper and not a breeder, um, I'm still just a hobbyist. I tell myself all the time, but, um, when I was not even breeding anything, just keeping them, I was in college, I had a 150 gallon tank with a bunch of tanks. Um, and I'm sad to tell everybody they weren't all the same locale or color morph. There was, there was multiple in there. You monster. Um, I know, I know, <laughs> oh, I know. Um, but 
I had them in there for, let's see, four years before I did get some breeding. That was the only problem that did happen was there was breeding and people got very upset. Um, but, I, you know, I don't know. I don't really know what all sexes I had in there. I mean, or, or like the dynamic, but I, I mean, I had, there was citronella in there. There was Alanis, there was Azurius, there was powder blues. I had a bunch of, bunch of crap in there. Um, it was, uh, I think it was like four foot wide by two feet deep. And then it was like 30 inches tall or something. It was a, I think it, I think it was 150. It was a 150. Um, and I had the, a, a crazy background. It was like the first big tank I ever did. I think it was like 2004. Um, and there was tons of space and tons of hiding in there. So I didn't really see fighting amongst them. Um, and, but they, for me, they didn't really, I guess they didn't really hang out on the, the upper third of the tank. They were on the ground and on the mid-level, but they never were up high. So um, at times it seemed a little crowded. Like I'd feed them and I'd see like, you know, 15 frogs down there feeding. And, and I don't think that tank was that 150s large, but it's not huge. Um, so to see like 15 frogs just kind of all in the same spot in a bunch of different colors too. Now looking back at it, I'm like, that's just so unnatural and kind of dumb. Um, but I guess if you had like 15 Azurius, that could be cool. Um, again, you just got to really watch for the females, um, you know, you're, you're probably going to lose. And, and that's not to say, so I, I had the frogs. I had a bunch of, like I said, a bunch of tinks in there. Not every frog made it to adulthood. I raised them all up from when they were young, but there were some losses. I definitely lost a couple frogs growing them up. Um, but, uh, things were way different back then. And there was not nearly as much information and as much informa information that was easily attainable back then either. So, I wasn't even on Dendrobore back in 2004. So, you know, I was pretty much just, I bought frogs from this guy and I was doing my thing, just keeping them as a, as a hobbyist and having fun with it. So I didn't really know all the, the, the drama that would come <laughs> after I had the breeding happen. Um, Cause like I said, I was just a, a college kid keeping frogs. And I, that's all it was to me. It wasn't, there wasn't frogs on YouTube. There wasn't pet tubers. There wasn't, um, I mean, the forums were there, I just, but I wasn't on them. I wasn't on the forums. It wasn't Facebook and Instagram. It was none of that. So it was just like, yeah, it was just basically like a kid that goes to a pet store and gets fish and puts them in a fish tank. And it's just, he's learning his own way, which that's how everyone did it back then is you pretty much learn by the experience, you know, um, you couldn't just go read about and all the care sheets and stuff were terrible back then. So, oh yeah. My first foray into the hobby was with, um, Aratus. I bought three Aratus at an expo. And at, at the time back in like two, this is probably like 2002. It was, you were supposed to keep them on damp paper towel with some pothos. And I did that and the frogs were healthy. They looked good at the time, but yeah. I, I don't think I was feeding them enough. And I think that just being on the wet paper towel was just the wrong, oh, the wrong absolutely. thing. Absolutely. And yeah. I, and they died. They I had them only for maybe a month, two months, yep. and then that was the end of them. Yep. Yeah. It's, and people used to, they used to, the care sheets used to talk about putting a 
under the tank heat mat and all kinds of stuff. You're like, this isn't even nobody does what the care sheet said to do back in the early two thousands. Um, but, but yeah, so to answer your question, paludarium, no, I wouldn't do tanks in a paludarium, uh, unless it was a ton of land with a little water area. You can do that. That's fine. Um, but in a vivarium, it's definitely doable to, to do, do certain tanks. Um, and honestly, like I was talking about the glass frogs, tinks and glass frogs, they go fine together. Um, Ranitomane glass frogs, they'll do fine together. All that stuff. I don't know if I'd do like reticulata because I feel like maybe the glass frogs, some of them would try to eat those. But um, yeah, glass frogs are a great, great partner with any. And that's what I think is cool about them. Um, they are a great cohab species. And, you know, it's kind of a perfect situation for a big, large format display tank. You know, you've got daytime action and you've got nighttime action. So it's like, no matter what, if someone's over the house or if you're just hanging out in your house, there's something going on in that tank. You know, you can always find something no matter what, which is kind of the perfect, perfect storm for a, for a, a display tank. So, you know, I, I, I'm trying to think of a good number of tanks to do in a tank that size. Um, I mean, you always, you, you could know, just go with a pair. That's the other thing is you don't. Or, or I even don't like think that would be interesting. <laughs> oh, come on. It'd be fascinating. You could watch them sit in this <laughs> tiny little, in this one little corner of a whole big tank for, for hours on end. Come on. Don't tell me that's not interesting. <laughs> that's why I said for a single pair of frogs, I think the large obligates are, are the coolest because they walk everywhere and they're calling and recording and then they just, they move around. Like the tanks would be cool in a pair when they are courting, they'd probably be moving around a lot and then they go in their hut for 10 hours and do their thing, whatever. Um, but well, not always 10 hours, but it, it sometimes when I, when I first would ever breed a tank, it always felt like they were in the hut for like six hours. Like, what are you guys doing in there? And then they get out and there's like two eggs. I was like, what? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think a pair of tanks would be really boring in a tank that size. Um, but a, a, I would say to be safe, like a group of like six, six or seven, uh, and try to keep it male heavy. Um, like, you know, 4.2 or, uh, maybe even five, two just depends on how you have the tank set up to like the, the egg, egg deposition sites. You've got one low, one medium, one high, or you have two low, two medium, two high. It's going to give more places for females to, kind of uh develop a territory where they feel comfortable where they may not need to, to fight as much so um yeah i think you could do a, a decent sized group of them but again you got to watch it like you'd, you'd have to be monitoring it and and not not like well i bought i bought 10 of these azurias froglets and they're four they're, you know they've been in there for four months and they're doing fine it's like well yeah they're they're not sexually mature <laughs> you've got to wait till when you start when they start getting to that 10 12 month age um, you got to start watching like daily to make sure, uh, sorry, my mystic system's going off right now, but, um, you know, you gotta, you gotta watch and make sure that there's, they're not scrapping it out because males will fight too. Um, but usually they don't seem to be as, uh, I guess relentless with the fighting. Like, 
if you kind of if I, when I've had male tinks fight and I slide the door open, they kind of get spooked and they're like, ah, well, what are we doing? Ah, let's break this. Let's bro it out. Let's do some bro hugs and they get over it real quick. The females, it's like, oh no, no, it's it's cat fight fever. Yeah, um, I've seen females kill males too. Oh yeah, yeah. And I'm like, why are you? You just bred with him last week. Why are you wrestling him today? Yeah, they're the female things definitely are uh, are the aggressors in, in my experience. Yeah, I'm sure other other people. Yeah, I'm sure other people have some different experiences. But yeah, I, I had I grew up a group of three, all females, from froglet size up in yep. uh, you know decent size tag, not huge, thirty six by eighteen by eighteen, like a forty breeder type setup. And they got along fine, minimal squabbling here and there. They all kind of gravitated towards the same spot. And um, I pulled one of the females out for, I forget why, I think I just separated her for some reason. Had nothing to do with the social dynamic or anything like that. I think I just wanted to put her into a different tank that I had going. Yeah. And um, I kept her out of there for a couple of months. And the other two females were fine, nothing changed. As soon as I put this female back in, it was on immediately. Yep. It was like everything, whatever had developed before had withered and crumbled because they, they just, (laughs) they, they, and it wasn't like the female that I introduced was the, the victim. Yep. They, it was a mutual thing. They just, they just, it was like they, you put the two of them together and they see red. So it's like, if, if you want to sex a tinctorious, just if the two of them brawl, you know they're probably both female. Exactly. Don't actually do that, people. But you, you get the idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I've done it. I've I've had all my experience, my experiments. Like, like I can't really tell if this is male or female. Eh, I'll throw it in with a known male or a known female, and yeah. But that's one way I would tell. I mean, I'd be like, yeah. I thought it, I thought it was a male, but uh, the toe pads weren't as big, and I threw it in with the female, and they were both going at each other right away. So it's yeah. like, yeah, those are those are two females. They're brutal. They're absolutely brutal. Yep. Yeah. So, so yeah, I just think that that's, that's something that can be done. You just gotta, gotta watch it. Just like, like I was talking about the familia being male, male, usually male dominance. You know, you gotta watch for that too, but it definitely can be done. Just, you know, I don't think any large format tank is really for, I mean, multiple reasons suitable for, for like a, a beginner, you know, I don't, I don't think that's the best idea. Um, <clears throat> yeah, this is all. Yeah. This is all in the context of, you know, your fr- your first car isn't a Maserati. Exactly. Uh, well, maybe it, it is. It can be. It can be. If you're really just, loaded, but yeah, it's just not not recommended. Um, you know, definitely people sometimes that's what they want though, and you know, it's like if you yeah, want to go for it, go the for heart it, wants you know, what but, the heart wants. Exactly. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we're, we've covered a lot, and I think that it's really just given everyone a lot to think about. But the, the main, I guess the main takeaway here is that this is not a 36 by 36. This is not an 18 by 24. It, it poses a whole new sen- set of, uh, you know, challenges and whatnot. And there's a lot of possibilities. I mean, it gives you the opportunity to do certain things space-wise that you wouldn't be able to do inside of a small attack. And I feel like... Right. A lot of our understanding in terms of what constitutes proper husbandry and normal behavior and whatnot, 
I feel like that's generally within the confines of a literally like a 36 by 36. And I feel like if we go outside that, it opens up new doors. And whether that's good, bad, neutral, whatever, it still opens up a whole new possibilities. I mean, obviously, if you're a beginner and you're listening to this, um, you know, maybe think of this as something to go to in the future. But obviously, if you're going to ever put frogs together, you know, don't do it in a way that is haphazard or something that could be potentially problematic because we're talking about it. I mean, we're talking about, I'm in my closet right now recording. We're talking about <laughs> it. We're basically talking about a tank that's as big as my closet. So it's, it's, you can't really compare it the way that you would with a smaller tank. But I mean, in any event, you know, you, Troy, you've given us a lot to think about. We talked about a lot of different species and yep. Hey, look, if you're, if you want a huge tank and you want one frog in it, that's totally cool. There's nothing wrong with that. If you want to do something a little bit more dynamic and, you know, try a cohab with something that's compatible. And I mean, again, compatible, you've done a lot of in investigation and whatnot, and you talk to the right people. I mean, basically, if you're a beginner, this is not necessarily the project you want to start out with. But, I, I, you know, yeah. I don't want to discourage anybody. You could. But, sure. Yeah. Well, in any event, um, we're out of time, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> we're out of time. It's been a while. Yeah. yeah. I knew it was getting close. Yeah. But hey, look, there's always there's always gonna be another time. I mean, maybe we'll you know what, if if you listeners out there, if you're interested in some of the topics, um and again, you know, this is all you know, this is all just a hypothetical tank. So if anybody else has uh, you know, questions or comments or opinions or something like that, or maybe you have an intake, feel free to reach out. Look, I'm open to hearing everybody's perspectives and that's totally cool. So, I mean, to bring the series to a close, it's been a lot of fun. We, we've covered four episodes dedicated to one topic. And, you know, I want to thank everybody who listened and everybody who's been a part of this. I want to thank Bill. I want to thank uh, Brandon and uh, Alex and, of course, Troy for coming on yeah. and talking about sure. what goes into taking, you know, undertaking such a big project. So, so for all you guys out there listening, be sure to check out In Situ Ecosystems. Be sure to check out Brandon on Instagram, Lost Vivariums. Uh, Alex Menke, Frog Daddy, and of course, Troy on YouTube, Troy's Tropical Garage. And um, I hope you guys enjoyed the series. Stay tuned. I've, I've got some other interesting stuff coming up uh, on the horizon. I've got a couple of couple of guests that people have been uh, pretty interested in. I've got them in the works coming up soon. So be sure to stay tuned to that. And um, if you guys like the series, by all means, let me know. We can do similar stuff in the future. So hope you guys enjoyed it. Catch up with you again soon.